economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. All right, welcome to our show. I am Dr. Russ McCullough. I hold the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics here, and I'm founder of the Gortney Institute. Today with me, I've got a couple other professors. I've got Dr. Justin Clark, our Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and our Professor of Economic Education and Research, Dr. Peter Jacobson. All right, so just no graduate assistance today. This is one of our days off of break, and so we thought we'd touch on a little cost-benefit analysis. We'll try to weave some faith component in here in some way. So the government made a policy change. CDC came out and said, uh, we can reduce our 10-day waiting period down to five days. And it's been interesting for me listening on the news, some of the takeaways to this. The science, quote unquote, (laughs) as near as I can tell, shows that the Omicron variant is the majority variant out there floating around. And People are most contagious within the first three days of that, and they're basically done. So the CDC came out and said, we can do a five-day. And the pushback has been, oh, this is kind of a business decision, isn't it? As if other considerations in life outside of health can't be brought into the equation, which which somewhat made me laugh because I think people not working or uh, not being able to go to family events and all of that stuff plays into the overall cost-benefit analysis of the government imposing some sort of lockdown or quarantine for this 10-day period. And so I thought it was great that the CDC seemed to be bringing in somewhat of a cost-benefit analysis with it being science-backed, but yet people push back on this and say, oh, but there's going to be at least one person that will that will spread it because on the seventh day. And so as if that's some sort of justification that we should hold tight to a 10-day period. And so this brings up the age-old question of marginal analysis and economics, that what the benefits and the cost of the decision, you know, should we move from 10 to 5? And so we get into uncertainty and probabilities. And the little bit that I read on it and, and listened to, I thought, the CDC made a pretty good move. Uh, what do you guys think? I really appreciate the CDC using, you know, supposedly at least using cost-benefit analysis to try to make the recommendations. I don't think that they are making the economic cost-benefit analysis that either they're being accused of making or that even <laughs> I think Russ is excited that they would be making. I think they're making a political cost-benefit analysis. The midterms are coming up. It's very, very suspicious to me that all of a sudden now it's okay, you know, all of a sudden these kinds of measures need to be taken into account, i.e. the costs of the kind of lockdowns uh, that, you know, obviously have a, has been taking a huge toll on the economy and the psychological well-being of especially young people. And when before, it's not like they're saying the cost-benefit analysis really changed I mean, they are saying that, but if you look at what they were saying before, they weren't even taking into account a lot of the costs with these lockdowns. So, you know, I might give like a a slow clap for the CDC for finally (laughs) doing something correct, even if it is for what I think are obviously political and probably the wrong reasons. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's something there. I don't want to totally discount, you know, uh, again, uh, there's been like a lot of upset people on the left about this who are pointing out that like it's Delta. I think the Delta CEO sent a letter to the CDC mm-hmm. like days before basically saying, hey, can you cut this from 10 to 5? I don't think it's totally impossible that there's some political relationships between big airline companies and the CDC and that those were leveraged a little bit. So I'm not sure it's pure election-based thing, but I do think some of the updates we've been seeing fit well with Justin's explanation. We recently had President Biden come out and say basically that I agree with the governors. There's not really a federal solution to the pandemic, which is what a lot of people have been screaming for uh, over a year now. That Like we have federalism for a reason. Let's try these varied responses, all that stuff. Um, oh, you got you to gotta just jump in with federalism there. Give a brief some of our listeners might be tuning in and not heard our previous podcast on federalism. Quick little thumbnail of federalism. Different states do things differently and have some powers that the national government don't have. I think that's that's the quickest and easiest way to... Yeah, to and that's the way our founders that. wanted it. So that's right. Yeah. Limited federal powers and more power to the states. Go ahead, Justin. Can I just interject here? You're right that Biden did say this isn't going to be solved at the federal level. This will be solved at the state level, right? But on the campaign trail, he said he had a federal solution for stopping COVID. Right. And six months ago, he said, DeSantis, these governors need to get out of my way. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so this is a complete about face. And what really bothers me is the fact that this about face is not being acknowledged. It's this kind of, you know, we're, we're at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with East Asia. You know, how dare you have a memory longer than that of a fruit fly? And remember that we were saying the exact opposite of these things six months ago when it benefited us politically to say them. In, in some ways, I wish he'd maybe admit that he learned about the knowledge problem that Hayek laid out for us, right? I mean, in a sense, I have a federal solution and then he learned, oh, wow, this is kind of complicated. Maybe distributed knowledge in people's brains around the whole United States would work better. Unfortunately, I think Justin's, uh, <laughs> he, he might have learned about the knowledge problem, but only secondarily. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. what Joe Biden learns is that uh, basically people don't want his federal solution, that actually he's going to get a, a lot of problems in swing states, for example, if he tries swing states that may be elected Republican governors, if he tries to override them with his own COVID policies. These aren't popular policies. We're seeing this more and more. Census data recently came out. We see, you know, the biggest states people are leaving are states like New York and California and Michigan's not doing well either. Illinois is one of the, like, the most left states in the country. The states that are succeeding are South Dakota, Florida. I mean, do you see the pattern here? Mm -hmm. The states with very, very stringent (laughs) lockdowns have had mass exodus. Governors realize this. And not only do governors realize it, I think the Biden administration is starting to see the writing on the wall here. And so I I think it's more likely that maybe he's learning the knowledge problem, but only insofar as he realizes if I don't take into account other people's preferences and the things that they know, I'm not going to get reelected. If Biden were dropped in the White House from some sanitarium a year and a half ago, then I might say, okay, maybe he's learned about the knowledge problem. But this man has been in Washington since the 70s. You know, he was vice president. If he uh, if he didn't learn about the knowledge problem, then I don't think he's learning about it now. This strikes me as pure political calculation. Uh, You know, I think they stay so isolated in their D.C. bubble that it is possible for them to be there for 40, 50 years and not learn about the knowledge problem that they continue to 
think that they wield the both the solutions and the problems that the, they create the problems and wield the solutions at the same time in their little Washington bubble, I think, inside the beltway. I think they can be there for that long and not learn about it. I just don't <laughs> think they can be there for that long, not learn about it, and then learn about it. <laughs> well, I wonder how much this uh, Build Back Better getting uh, quashed by the, the one standout made a difference because they maybe we'll start to see, and we already are seeing, you know, the regime come more towards the freedom spectrum, I guess, if we were looking at a scale. The fact that that got overturned and there was as much blowback as there was, I think sent a signal that they need to change their political narrative a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I think, Russ, you're right. The, the marching orders have been given. Now, again, I'm not talking necessarily about formal marching orders, but we saw like Brian Stelter the other day come out and say, you know, he's been a doomsayer, the end is nigh on pandemic stuff for a year, for over a year now. And he came out and said, well, should we really be sacrificing young people's lives to protect the old? Oh, wow. That or, or was something along that line. about eight well, months ago. Yeah, there, it, right? a lot, I mean, a lot of people screams that. I mean, I'm sure on, you know, Tucker Carlson was probably saying that on Fox News and now Brian Stelter saying it. There's something happening. I think sort of like Delta was used as an excuse to renew or expand a lot of COVID lockdown policies. I think Omicron is being used as an excuse to lessen them. <clears throat> yeah. And so now they're instead of doing a complete 180, having no reason for it. At least there's now a, a reason for the 180, which is Omicron. I wonder how much the Cuomo stuff, I, I just feel like now that we're talking about this right now, that there's been a number of chinks in the armor that have pushed that direction, both the Cuomo starting with New York and then on to the, to the news guy, kind of little things that have kind of pushed them the other direction. So I mean, uh, just another example is Jennifer Rubin, who was, uh, you know, is a opinion writer at the Washington Post. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but yesterday, I think, yeah, she tweeted, as we recognize that COVID-19 is not a deadly or even severe disease for the vast majority of responsible Americans, we can stop agonizing over cases and focus on those who are hospitalized or at risk of dying. Right. Now, you will remember that was the Great Barrington Declaration, which yeah. when it was trotted out was just mercilessly attacked as a letter rip strategy by the entire blue check commentariat, including Jennifer Rubin. And we actually have emails released now that show Francis Collins at the NIH emailing Dr. Fauci to try and discredit these uh, Harvard and Oxford, I believe, epidemiologists as you know fringe theorists. And now right. they're coming around a year and a half later to say that, well, hey guys, I've had an idea. What if we did the Great Barrington Declaration, but we called it the Jennifer Rubin Declaration? And I just think that it would be a shame to let these people get away with what they are attempting to memory hole. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of come back to people are going to believe what they want to believe. So giving these little outs, like Peter was just highlighting that the Omicron variant now gives them a little wiggle room to, to start talking the way we've been talking since day one and the Great Barrington Declaration as well, gives them just that, that little bit of an out. And, and then the people, my point is that the people who are their followers, as long as they have some sort of talking point, um, then they're still on their team. Their team is still safe. Yeah. And we should acknowledge that. I mean, I do agree with Justin that we need to not let people who were kind of these doomed doomsdayers get away with, you know, acting like they always had this moderate, reasonable position now that their old positions have been deemed 
you know, basically untenable to hold by the public and still be successful. But I, we should acknowledge like the, this is a good development, what's happening with Omicron. And so as far as we can tell, Omicron seems to be more contagious, less deadly, and also able to provide immunity for COVID. And so the, like, the benefit of this is, well, if you have a bunch of people getting a less deadly version of coronavirus constantly, like that, you know, it keeps renewing, a lot of people have it at once. Actually, what you're doing is you're creating an immunity for these other worse variants, maybe Delta, we, we could say. And this is actually sort of the nature of disease. This is why there's almost, people often have this fear that there's going to be a global pandemic that's going to kill everyone. People sometimes will beat the drama of like, oh, this is the next, you know, this is going to be the thing that ends humanity. One of the nice things about diseases is the diseases that allow people to live are the ones that tend to succeed. Because if you, if a disease enters someone and kills them immediately, it can't continue to enter other people, right? And so this could actually be a, a really positive development and one that we shouldn't have, uh, you know, totally, if you had said months ago that, oh, maybe variants will actually help and we'll get a better variance in here that's going to crowd out the others, people would have said, oh, that's insane. We can't have more variants. Variants are going to mean we all die. I think this is a good learning moment for people about pandemics. They don't happen often. And one of the, the benefits of seeing this is that we can see, well, when they do happen, sometimes there are positive developments too. The only thing yeah. I'd add to that, though, is that people were saying that months ago, right? And yeah, they that's were true. being called crazy. Yeah, um, that's right. And I think it is important to, in my more spiteful moments, I think it's very important <laughs> to punish the people who were ridiculing the people who got it right. But maybe we don't have to do that. Fine, Justin. But <laughs> at least recognizing the people that did get it right, um, I, I think, I think I it's think, important. I think there's a strategy to applauding people for changing their tune now in order to not disincentivize them. But then later when everything's done, you go back and torch them for the mistakes that they made. And so I, I'm fine with saying, yes, good job, Joe. Thank you for recognizing that federalism is a centerpiece of our country and can help us respond to pandemics. I'm totally okay with giving him props for the most recent response. And in three years or eight years, whenever, you know, this whole COVID conversation becomes a lot more reasonable, it's fine to go back and say, all right, now let's talk about how Joe Biden ruins the country, or let's talk about how Andrew Cuomo ruins New York and these things. Uh, so I'm more than happy to give people like a little applause right now and then come back later and uh, hold them accountable. Maybe that's uh, even, even you wouldn't like it, but I, I would like to incentivize people making the right decision. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our break. A couple of things came up for me when we when we come back. One, uh, Faith, I, I want to come back to this. Uh, do, do Christians respond better to these types of pandemics because we know in the end everything's going to be okay? Does it look a lot more bleak for non-believers than, than believers? How, how important is the Christian faith in how we deal with pandemics, maybe like we've gone through? And then the, the other thing is kind of related, Peter can probably jump on the most here with James Buchanan. And we talk about cost-benefit analysis, but can costs really be measured or are they so subjective that we, we can't really use it as a tool? So with that, we'll be back in just a few. If you enjoy our podcast or want to support our work, please consider a one-time or re reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. The Gorton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. 
we have a high school offering now of a course that you can take uh, through Ottawa um, and earn some college credit. So we're looking for some uh, anxious high school students that want to explore some more economics and it's going to be uh, reasonably priced. I don't actually have it priced yet, so contact me later if you want to check that out and earn some college credit. That college credit will be transferable to any other university that your high school student uh, goes to. So um, give me a call if you'd like to get some more information on that. If you want other information about the Gorton Institute or Ottawa University, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Okay, and we're back. So the cliffhanger I left with, we'll start off with the faith part, I think. I just think of the way some of my Christian friends and my relatives reacted to it. Some of them, I think, maybe too much. I, I'm not a big fan of the, oh, don't worry about anything. God will save me. God will protect me. There's a there's a good, I don't know if it's a Lutheran joke or not, about this guy who uh, was facing a dramatic flood, and he's at the pearly gates in front of Christ, and he said, well, Christ, why didn't you save me at the, at the time when the flood was coming? Uh, he said, well, let's go rehash what happened. And so the, the floodwaters were rising, and and a fireman on a boat came up and offered to do. And, and the guy said, no, don't worry about it. Jesus will save me. And so he went away. And he's on his roof. And the water's getting more and more. A helicopter came overhead and dropped him a ladder and said, here, I'm here to save you. And uh, he said, no, no, Jesus will save me. Then finally, the floodwaters overtook him and he died. And so Jesus just said, I, I came twice for you. And you didn't, you didn't take it. And so the moral of the story is that God uses people in their vocations to help do his work here on earth. And we can't just totally throw up our arms and do nothing. You are called to action. So Justin, what, what were your thoughts on the Christian angle here? I think we know from psychological studies that, and this is something that is the, you know, the bane of a lot of academic atheist psychologists is that people who uh, are religious and Christian in America are tend to be happier, report higher life satisfaction, give more to charity, etc. And uh, if, if the question is, do Christians respond better in plague-ish times? I think there's some evidence, not only today, but also historically that that's the case. I think if you if you look, for instance, there was a famous leper colony in Hawaii, and there were two priests. One of them begged the, his bishop to send him there to, to minister to the leper colony. So this was Father Damien in 1873, and he famously went to the leper colony, worked like a, a beaver to improve it, walked among the lepers, you know, ministered to the lepers, and then famously began his sermon, not with the customary brethren, but with we lepers. So he literally went to the leper colony to serve the lepers and contracted leprosy. And so did the person who followed him. Right. And I think it does take a, a kind of faith to inspire that kind of action. And that is something that we see throughout the history of Christianity is, you know, this really heavy importance placed on ministering to the needy, even at the expense of your own earthly well-being. 
So I don't think it's just this, you know, Jesus will save me kind of thing that you were talking about in the joke, which surely that's, that might be there too, right? But I think it is also the importance that's placed on ministering and serving to the needy that you find in Christianity that I think helps even keep communities together in, in times like this. Yeah, I agree with Justin. There's two Bible verses that come to mind when we talk about, you know, worries about the future and things like that. Them Russ had brought up during the break, he'd mentioned, which is in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking to people. And it's Matthew 6, 26 is the verse in particular. You can look at the context as well. I think the context reinforces the, the recurring idea here in the, the verses. Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow nor gather in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so sort of pointing out that these the, the birds aren't really worried too much about tomorrow. Uh, they're not worried about, you know, having enough food for tomorrow, but, you know, God still feeds them and provides for them. And, you know, if you're not more valuable, what about them? And so sometimes people will pair this, that, you know, you, you've got some edgy folks who will com- compare this with Proverbs and say, well, here's a biblical contradiction, checkmate Christi- Christians. <laughs> uh, and so Proverbs 21:20 has a verse that on the surface Sounds like it might be saying the opposite of what's said here. Proverbs 21.20 says, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. And so this verse is saying that, well, the wise person is saving their stuff and the foolish person is just getting rid of all of it. And so how do you put these two together? What you have to do is you have to look at Matthew 6 and realize in context, what Jesus is saying is not that you shouldn't save or have uh, resources available tomorrow. What Jesus is saying is, your security shouldn't be placed in earthly things. That is, you shouldn't rely on the things of this world as the things that are going to keep you safe. You mean like Fauci's words telling us how to keep safe? Or, yeah, or, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the ability to maintain a quarantine. I mean, imagine if, you, if your life was your most important thing to you, and then you also believed the, the edicts coming out at the time that lockdowns are the best way to stay safe and all this, and that you were going to, many people would die without them. And then they end. Imagine what anxiety you feel. You know, there's a good Christian quote that's kind of based on this sort of biblical view, which is that you, it, it's sort of a truism. You, you have, the only reason you could ever be afraid is if you're putting your faith in the wrong things. And the idea behind that is, well, God's all powerful and God has a plan. And the Bible also tells us that God is working for our good. So the only reason you could ever be afraid is if you didn't believe one of those things to be true. You believe that your security comes from your own ability. If that's the case, man, you should be worried because uh, your own ability is going to fall short. So I, I think Christians, like Justin said, leprosy is a great example. I mean, Jesus also walked amongst the lepers, the apostles ministered. Uh, and disciples after Jesus's death to diseased people frequently. When your life on earth is not the most valuable thing to you, you're able to face death more courageously and also worry less about, you know, disease. That doesn't mean you act in such a way that is careless, of course. And that's not, again, we've got Proverbs 21, 20 here telling us that you you should act in a prudent, careful way. But what it means is that you shouldn't place at the center of your life your ability to save yourself from disease or something like that. And I think that sort of action is, it's necessary to live. You have to be willing to take risks to live. 
the, the further you insulate yourself from things like disease or the outside world, I mean, in the extreme, we call these things mental disorders, right? The phobias, the fear of going outside. I mean, all of this stuff, these, these are mental illnesses. These are things that make it hard to live. Well, I think that segues nicely into me wanting to circle this back to cost and how they're measured. You said your willingness to take on risk. To me, that that's at the heart of this question of 10-day versus 5-day that we started with is that there's a probability that there is going to be some people that are going to spread the disease outside of it. And so when is the right decision to say we keep it at 10 or we keep it at five there? How do we compare using probabilities that might vary across people? So I don't know, maybe, Peter, you want to start off with some of maybe Buchanan's thoughts or your own on on costs, how they're subjective? Yeah, so the key to recognize in economics, the the central thing, the first thing you learn, maybe the second thing you learn if you talk about scarcity, is that in life there are opportunity costs. An opportunity cost is when you do one thing or you buy one thing or you make one thing, you could have done or buy or made something else. If you recognize that fact, then every single thing done or made or bought or acted upon, all of those things have a cost. And so there, this old saying in economics is there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's what it means. Someone might take you out to lunch, but there were resources used to create your lunch that could have been used for something else, right? No mm-hmm. such thing as a free lunch. And so one of the central ideas to a lot of economists is that we can do cost-benefit analyses, which is we can measure the benefits of something, measure the opportunity costs of that something, and we can decide whether or not doing that something is worth it. One of the things that James Buchanan pointed out is that things are not necessarily this easy. And so this is a Nobel Prize winning economist, James Buchanan, uh, was at uh, University of Virginia for some time, then made a transition to George Mason University. That's where he won his Nobel Prize and did most of his work on what's called public choice economics. Buchanan pointed out something simple. Opportunity costs are subjective or, or people act on them subjectively. In other words, when you do an action and you give something up, the thing that you're giving up is not worth the same amount to, uh, to you as it would be necessarily to someone else. And so, you know, imagine you're deciding between uh, two desserts, maybe a pudding and jello. The reason people make different decisions on this is because they value pudding and jello differently. And so people can make different decisions because there are different opportunity costs. The opportunity cost of choosing jello is too high for one person, they'd rather pick the pudding, right? And so Buchanan's point is basically that, well, these cost-benefit analyses that, that we try to do, uh, ultimately, actually, we, we, they're not workable. We would need to have uh, knowledge about everybody's beliefs about how valuable the things we have to give up are. And so Buchanan was uh, skeptical of this idea that we could measure the cost and cost-benefit analysis. I think Buchanan's basically right. I think that the attempt by politicians to find the optimal or the economically efficient policy are basically, you know, doomed. I, I think they're worthless. I will say, though, and I think Buchanan would agree with this, too. So I think the implication of what Buchanan is saying is that you can't know what's of some policy cost society because you can't know what everybody is giving up and how much they value the things they give up. But what you can know is what something costs you. And so I think this is at the center of public choice, and this gets back to the beginning of our conversation, that when politicians make a decision, they don't know what they're forcing their constituents to give up, but they do know what they're being forced to give up. 
And so this, I think, is at the bottom of our explanation for what is happening right now, the, the policy pivots we're seeing, is that Biden, it's not like Biden suddenly realized, oh, my constituents are having to give up too much uh, value all of a sudden because Omicron shifted. Uh, he didn't know how much people were giving up in the first place. We don't know how hard it was for people to not say goodbye to their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't put the dollar value on that. We didn't give people a chance to put a dollar value on that. We made it illegal. And so we dollars, Peter. <laughs> That's right, $35. <laughs> and, and so, and we don't, we don't know the cost of traveling. We don't know the cost of weddings postponed, all of those different things. It was made illegal. We weren't allowed to buy and sell over that. And so we don't know what the value was. People weren't able to reveal their value for these sorts of things. And so Joe Biden doesn't suddenly know it's too costly for us to engage in this policy. What he knows is it's politically too costly for me to continue these, you know, a 10-day quarantine because if people can't get their flights, they're not going to vote for me. That's what Joe Biden knows. That's what I think uh, Buchanan's research implies. And and I think that's in reality what happens. Yeah, somewhat related to this. I I certainly don't want to get off track on global warming, but I have to say this. I was shocked to see CBS uh, Sunday morning show did a whole piece on how global warming is helping the UK wine growers. And so the warmer climate is kind of shifting the ideal growth area from France up to the United Kingdom. Yep. And I mean, they just went on and on about how this is so such a good thing. And so they're <laughs> recognizing that there is some, some benefits to possibly shifting global climates. It, it just really shocked me to, that they'd even do that piece, that yeah. they'd even air it. No, that's right. For, for the record, you know, if we assume that the current climate on the coast is ideal, we don't want it warmer. That would also imply that we maybe could improve the Midwest if we made the Midwest have a climate similar to how the coasts are now. Mm-hmm. And so if we have climate <laughs> change that makes the Midwest more like the coasts, well, the, it's not really a question of like everybody's hurt. It's a question of, well, someone benefits, someone loses. Yeah. Uh, kind of beside the point. But yes, I, I, yes. I think that that's similar to what you were saying, Russ. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there was an interesting piece by Rand Paul. It was an interview. And I kind of want to hear Justin's opinion on this because I think it's right in line with with the way he thinks. Stossel was pushing him saying, well, what if the virus was like super, super contagious and like airborne? Because Paul's stance was we should not impose lockdowns of any sort, let individuals basically make their own decision on the risk that they want to take that we've just been enunciating on how difficult that is to measure and everybody's different, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, Stossel really pushed him and said, well, suppose that it's like, you know, what we've read about in the in the movies with the uh, the what am I trying to say here? The virus that's airborne. And oh, my gosh. Anyway, what if it's one of those? Right. So that you just go outside and breathe it and boom, you've got it. And he still dug his heels in and said, no, I think everybody's in a bet in the best position to choose whether they want to go outside or not. And he kind of left it at that. And so. Justin, uh, are, are your heels dug in that far? I was even a little bit surprised the way Stossel pushed him. And Stossel's very much a libertarian, but I think Stossel wanted to, in a thought experiment way, say, are you sure you know that you wouldn't support federal policy? And Rand Paul just kind of dug in. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with um, Rand Paul there. I think that the moment you surrender that point, you get what we have now, which is that we are in day 600 something of 15 days to flatten the curve. Um, (laughs) Look, I, I just, I think the probability of there being a pandemic 
that is that virulent and that deadly is so low compared to the probability that a federal government will misuse the powers <laughs> we conditionally uh, uh, give to it, which we have seen throughout this pandemic, that I, I have to agree with Rand Paul there. We just say never. Uh, yeah, there's. I think there's two uh, approaches to this. The first is something that I, I mentioned earlier, which is that when if a virus were ever to get this bad, I don't know if you listeners have ever played the game uh, online. There's a game called Pandemic. <laughs> the goal of the game is to wipe out the word of the earth of the pandemic. It hasn't <laughs> aged well. Uh, this was like an early 2000s flash internet game. And here was the strategy to the game. You make a disease that's barely noticeable and has very few symptoms and doesn't kill people because then the motivation for the world to cure it is low. I mean, in the, in right. the game, the world tries to cure it. And then you make it very deadly once everybody already has it. Mm. This isn't really how viruses work. They tend to be either deadly or not. Ebola is a great example. Ebola of this. was the one I was thinking. Pe- people earlier. sometimes have worried about an Ebola pandemic that you know we'll have the same thing with COVID that we do with we we would have the same thing with uh, COVID that we do with Ebola. Like imagine everyone getting Ebola. It's you know much more deadly. All this. The reason that doesn't happen. The reason that Ebola pandemics kind of die before they start is it's too deadly. People die very quickly of Ebola before they get the chance to spread it to someone else, they die. And so actually the disease doesn't replicate very quickly. Once it reaches some amount of people, it kind of, it slows down. I think Rand Paul actually brought that up. Yeah. That you're saying it. Yeah. So, so that's one, but even if that weren't the case, even if like, you know, it was like the game of pandemic where someone was engineering this very like non-lethal thing and then making it lethal all of a sudden, I think when people invoke government, there's oftentimes just a failure of imagination going on. Do I think people should create rules that will allow them to avoid dying in big global pandemics? Yes. Do I think those rules need to be put through a system that runs in Washington, D.C. and, you know, has elections and democracy as its base? No, I I don't think so. People throughout history have had different institutions solve these problems. There are like religious cleanliness rituals are basically spontaneous solutions to problems of disease. And so I don't believe that it's ever necessary, necessarily that is, for governments to be the solution to any sort of pandemic or anything like that. I just think people have more imagination than that. And I I think the government isn't imaginative enough to tackle things like this. I just don't, I don't see that. I have kind of come back around to that. I think early on, I thought, like Justin was saying, you know, the first couple of weeks, there's so much uncertainty, blah, 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 that maybe it's justified. But I think I've come around the other direction. I do believe the government does have a role uh, or can have a role, I should say, a positive, very positive role of being an information provider uh, rather than a policy changer. So I, I think we can use the federal government to help disseminate information for citizens to make their own decision on their own. So I think the role of information provider, I think I'm a little softer on. Maybe you guys would fight me back on that one, but Justin's shaking his head. Yep, I'm going to fight him. (laughs) What would you need to see in the past two years to bring you around to the idea that the only information the government is going to give out is going to be self-serving? Well, as long, yeah. And again, I, I might be living in unicorn land here, but my idea would be 
if if it was a hard and fast rule that it's not going to lead to policy change and it's purely information to be consumed, I'd be in favor of that. But maybe that's unicorn world. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily unicorn world, but I do think that public choice economics, which again, we mentioned James Buchanan came up with, which is basically the idea that politicians do the thing that most benefits them. Maybe, you know, if they're altruistic, we could imagine sometimes that means benefiting their constituents, but for the most part, it probably means they're getting more money or getting reelected or something. If we apply that to data releases, we get exactly what Justin's saying is in general, we should expect that the amounts, the type, and the accuracy of information the government releases will not reflect truth, but will reflect whatever utility maximization. Well, and by the way, I would still have the government subject to competition. I'm just saying that the government could help be a conduit of, so there'd be private people, uh, private companies. Of course, we know that they would be self-serving and rightfully so. Maybe they'd put out information about this problem and that they have the magic pill solution, of course, right? So we need healthy competition of information provision as well. Just as an example, I see on Twitter all the time now, this tweet put out by Health and Human Services that says, you know, which is a federal, which is a federal agency, and it has pictures of kids and it says they're irreplaceable. Children from five to 11 are now eligible for a vaccine. Children (laughs) can contract Omicron and you, uh, people still die from Omicron, right? And if you don't know like logic or statistics, you know that all of those things can be true while it's still being the case that children pose a statistical zero risk of death from this thing, right? Right. So that has the same argumentative structure as saying like birds can get in car accidents and we know that seatbelts save lives in car accidents, so we should put seatbelts on birds. Yeah, no, I, I ultimately, I, I, I would rather the government be doing what Russ is saying than what they're doing right now. I think that I would prefer they not have anything at all, that, that they really not be doing anything at all. I also recognize that that won't be the case. That, that's almost like wishful thinking in a sense. To, to me, I, I think the, the conclusion that we can draw out of this conversation that we're having here is there is a problem with diseases and pandemics and things like that. Like this is an imaginable problem that one way that you could handle these things is to trust these agents, the government. Another way you could handle them is to work on community-based solutions. And I say this like every podcast, so it's probably getting obnoxious listeners at some point, but you know, uh, there are again, religious ways of dealing. uh, And I'm not talking about like religious healing or anything, but there are ways that religions have been organized to, you know, help feed the sick and do it in a way that's not going to cause problems for the community as whole. Uh, You know, HOAs have, uh, are a good example of like certain rule structures that exist for people living. But my, my response is like, I, I look forward to people who are innovative about stuff like this. I look forward to community-based solutions to global problems because I actually think that's going to be the only successful type of solution. And so to me, that's the way out. I'm not to- like totally opposed to what Russ is saying right now, but I think everything's done better at an inf- at a community level. I, even, even information gathering, I think people are smart. They can create very interesting institutions that we can't imagine. And so that, that's my uh, take on how these problems need to be tackled. So let me make one more attempt to try to get both of you guys, at least on my side here. So it sounds, what Russ was saying, uh, and maybe this might be what you're agreeing with, is that the government, uh, it's okay for them to be involved in this kind of knowledge production dissemination, but not, it'd be great if they stepped away from policy. And that sounds a lot to me like it would be great if the government 
did knowledge production and didn't do government. And I think the government is always going to do government. So I think our only chance is to try to get the government as local as possible. And since we don't want the same body doing knowledge production as doing policy, the way we get, we stop this is not by having the government do knowledge production or dissemination, but, but by preventing them from doing it, stop having federal funds all be disseminated through the National Institute of Health. If we have a decentralized system of knowledge production, then maybe we get better policy, even if our policymakers are self-centered and not geniuses. Yeah, yeah. If that's pushed down through the states or even more locally. So. Yeah, I think I'm being both more pessimistic and more optimistic. Uh, like I would, I would even say that like both of these things are kind of like idealistic. So one idealistic way of talking would be to say we should have government create information and not govern. And I, I think like on some level that just can't happen. I think another idealistic way is, oh, we shouldn't have them create knowledge because they're going to govern. I actually think that's idealistic too, uh, because uh, they will create knowledge and govern. Both of these things are actually going to happen, right? But I agree with you that ultimately, if we are to play political games or something like that, I think movement towards local is always better, uh, both both politically and non-politically. So I, I think, it, as usual, we're in agreement about our what a good end would look like. And, you know, the, what the means to get there are, well, if we knew we'd do it, right? An end that we probably won't see in our lifetime. However, uh, what we talked about earlier, I feel like the needle moved a little bit that direction here in the last month or so with, with Build Back Better getting shot down and some other things that have evolved with the pandemic. We just, at least if, if you had to choose which direction the needle moved, I'd say it moved a little bit towards federalism in the teensiest, teensiest way. So... All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us on the World Wide Web. And otherwise, talking to your friends and sharing our podcast will do it too. Other than that, be fruitful multiply. Thanks.